Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, this is Power Card, aka Project Pat, and you're listening to the Baltimore Beatdown Podcast, the best Ravens podcast on the planet. That's pretty incredible. In fact, it's La Marvelous. Thank you guys. All right, welcome on back to another edition of the Baltimore Beatdown podcast. It is Friday, June 5th. Friday in June. We have officially reached summer. At least that's what it feels like. Oh yeah, it is humid. It is toasty. I'm getting some heavy sweats. Been going on some long runs and dying. Feels good. Uh, summer is here. Maryland non-essential businesses for many of our Maryland listeners. While they are not all of us, they are many of us or many of you guys, I should say. Non-essential businesses opening up today, Friday. Um, so that means people can go back to the barbershops and things like that. Hopefully, uh, my ultimate paradise i guess in mind has been hopefully the covid situation is pretty much regressed by the fourth of july and then nfl training camp is allowed to resume it was announced that nfl coaches may return to their team's headquarters in a memo sent out by roger goodell and the league which is another step forward Um, obviously you know a lot going on in the world over the past couple of months but hopefully that is a somewhat of a tunnel of hope and light that maybe god maybe we will have football on schedule Yeah, that's kind of been the target date for me to pretty much all along, at least maybe a week or two into the whole situation blowing up with COVID uh, July 4th. So hopefully we can hold this out for another month and that it is regressing at a serious, you know, rate by that point. Feels like it might be a little bit affected by everything that's gone on as far as the protesting and everything. I hope everyone uh, that participated in those stays safe and uh, does not contract the virus so that we can get back to, uh, I mean, I don't want to say some semblance of normalcy because, you know, there's a lot of things that need to change in this country uh, for for one perspective. But just as far as COVID and the virus goes, we can get back to where we were at a couple of months ago. But yeah, man, uh, I was talking with Anthony, Anthony Renato, who's going to be our guest on the show a little bit later on after the mailbag uh, before this. And uh, yeah, we were kind of talking about how sports coming back is just going to be you know, hopefully a welcome distraction from uh, COVID, at least not the stuff that we need to be distracted from, but uh, just that first sign of society getting back to where we need to be. Uh, sounds like NBA is going to probably be coming back soon. NHL definitely is. PGA Tour is scheduled to come back within like a week or two. So we're definitely uh, getting to that sweet spot. 
Absolutely. There will be sports again at some point, and I will be so happy to be able to hopefully attend training camp and take a look at the rookies and the new guys and things like that. So I've been looking forward to that, looking forward to everything involved. And yeah, like Jake said, stay safe. Make sure that you're not, you know, uh, counting your chickens before they hatch as far as COVID. Don't go too crazy. Try and continue to practice social distancing, all of that great stuff to finally get rid of this thing, hopefully sometime in the near future. But as Jake said, we're going to get into the mailbag. We hope that everyone feels great again uh, before we kind of descend into our segment. Just want to say again, if you have any questions, any concerns or feeling upset, need someone to talk to, please reach out to us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, email us, email baltimorebeatdown.com at gmail.com, anything of the sort. We're here to talk. We're here to talk with people and uh, try and provide any sort of shoulder that we can. But without further ado, we will get into the mailbag. Uh, first one coming in is from Alex Smearman, who asks, what would have made Hayden Hurst more successful in the Ravens offense during his short two years in Baltimore? How do you feel, Jake? This is going to be kind of a cop out, but Mark Andrews just not being drafted. Like, I feel like he probably would have done uh, a lot of similar things to what Andrews ultimately went on to do and what he is currently doing now. Uh, I feel like maybe not as good of a pass catcher, but maybe that more well-rounded, versatile tight end. Uh, or maybe Boyle not even being there. Maybe he could have been what Boyle is. I don't know if he necessarily would have been happy with that de facto number two role. But regardless, I think it was just a weird situation where three's a crowd and he kind of wanted to have more opportunities. So I think people are reading it as a situation where they said, oh, well, we don't need Hurst anymore. I think they would have loved to have Hurst, especially on a rookie contract where they're not paying him too much. There's not this massive obligation. I think it was him that wanted to get out of town and uh, find a you know a fresh start where he can really flex his muscles and show the league what he can do. Uh, and I think he's going to crush it in Atlanta, quite frankly. So. Oh, yeah. I think he's going to blow up in Atlanta big time. They use tight ends very heavily. He is more athletic downfield than Austin Hooper, while Austin Hooper presents a uh, different skill set a little bit. But definitely, as Jake said, I mean, the presence of Mark Andrews, the dominance of Mark Andrews, the kind of connection that him and Lamar Jackson just literally – it, it was there from the exact day one. Uh, so it's difficult to break with that. Hayden Hurst did also have a foot injury uh, when he was drafted, a Liz Franck injury. Uh, s- same kind of deal, a little bit could have limited, limited him for sure. But as Jake was saying, you know, tight end, if, if you look around the NFL, teams that have two good tight ends, like obviously the Eagles come to mind, uh, maybe the, I don't even know. I guess the Vikings, yeah, the Vikings have Rudolph and Irv Smith. The Bucks had Cameron Brait and uh, O.J. Howard. O.J. Howard didn't touch the damn ball. So having two tight ends get involved is pretty difficult, particularly, I mean, the Ravens do utilize them more than anyone, but having three was such a fantastic luxury. We talked about it and how it made the Ravens offense. Additionally, with Pat Ricard and referring to them as the four horsemen, so special, but it's just really difficult and you kind of saw Hurst's frustration really reach a boiling point in that playoff game when he was I mean he was yelling give me the damn ball let's do something here and it was just kind of you know in the tight end room a lot of mouths to feed you don't want to take Boyle off the field Boyle is a way better blocker than Mark Andrews or Hayden Hurst and you don't want to take Andrews off the field because Andrews is he was legitimately Arguably the best, him and Kittle were the two best receiving tight, I guess Kelsey too, the three best receiving tight ends in football last year. Andrews um, is their best pass catcher right now. 
Oh yeah, easily, easily their best pass catcher. And so we're we're interviewing uh, my friend, Coach Anthony Renato. He's talking about you know air raid and, and things that he likes to use, and talking about air raid tight ends, and that basically is a giant wide receiver. That's what Mark Andrews is. Mark Andrews is a really good pass catcher, a really good receiver. And it was just Hayden Hurst is caught in no man's land where he's a good receiver, not as effective as Mark Andrews was in the Ravens offense. And Nick Boyle is just a flat out better blocker than him. So he's again, just in no man's land. And like Jake said, I think he's going to be, I, I'm going to, I am in on Hayden Hurst in fantasy football. Holy shit. I'm in on Hayden Hurst in fantasy football. Um, he is going to be on my roster all the time. I would not be shocked to see him have a seven, eight, 900 yard season, 50, 60, 70 catches. He has amazing hands. He's a good route runner, very competitive at the point of, at the catch point. Um, really awesome stuff from Hayden Hurst. He just couldn't be a better blocker than Nick Boyle or a better receiver than Mark Andrews in this offense. Uh, I, th- I think it's pretty tough to argue that he would have been in any single way. So moving on, we have B Rose, our boy asking, uh, should the Ravens consider signing Timmy Jernigan? This is one that someone asked me on Twitter. And I was a little bit uh, flip-floppy, which I do a lot, but I like to play devil's advocate with myself. And Jernigan, and it feels like like Justin Matiboyk is very similar to Jernigan in many ways. It feels like the Ravens were in a really traditional, odd gap system. Uh, that 3-4 kind of you know big boy in the middle to let the edge rushers and linebackers run around thing. And Jernigan was not that at Florida State. He is not that in the NFL, has not been that. He's explosive, get up field. That's why he fit the Eagles profile. The Eagles have a very aggressive one-gap defense, Jim Schwartz, a lot of the time. And so now it feels like the Ravens are transitioning into kind of wanting that. They let Michael Pierce go. They bring Clayus Campbell. Um, Wolf is kind of a little bit of both, but he's not, you know, a nose guard guy. He's a guy that can get some pressure, get some sacks. Uh, so it feels like he would make sense. But again, I just feel that Matt Boyk might be a younger Jernigan with a little bit more upside, and they do have a lot of mouths to feed along the defensive front now. Um, so I would not hate bringing in Jernigan. I, I think it would be, you know, a luxury addition, strengthening a strength perhaps, depth, which is great. But uh, if they make a move, that does not need to be the one. I don't know how this works with fans of other teams. I'm assuming it's probably the same, but I know with Ravens fans, and I don't want to call everyone out, but I know I'm this way. When I see a former Raven, especially one that's still somewhat effective, get released, I immediately, like an alarm goes off in my head, like, should they bring this guy back? Uh, So I had this thought too, um, but ultimately I feel like it is just kind of that situation where you see the name, you're familiar with it, and you're like, ah, would this make sense? And it might on paper. Uh, but also, if you look at the investments they've made already, I think the writing is kind of on the wall with the defensive line. They don't really need to bring him in at this point. And uh, I feel like with everything that's gone on and uh, the way that camp is going to be unconventional, I don't know if you really need to invest that kind of money into a guy to come in and uh, you know maybe not see the field a ton and maybe not know the system as well. And I will say, in order to be a Super Bowl team, you do need to have someone that you've cut ties with that has returned. Uh, for whatever reason, that is filled by Pernell McPhee, so they have their quota on that. If Jernigan's last name was hyphenated, I would be all aboard. They do not have their quota on hyphenated names. But moving on, uh, Joe Boken, Ninja JC. After adding Calais Campbell, Derek Wolf, and Williams, I guess just in addition to Williams, um, can we see the 2018 sack numbers again? What do you think, Jake? Yeah, big sack numbers. You see big sack numbers coming this year. Yeah, yes. I feel hmm. it's interesting because I feel like you're probably going to have Wolf on a little bit of a pitch count. Maybe even the same for Campbell. Uh, who knows? But I feel like they're going to be playing maybe different roles. Whereas Campbell is going to be your sort of penetrator who goes in there and clears the way for maybe some of the linebackers coming in behind him and is just sort of you know clearing the space out. Whereas I feel like Wolf is going to be more of that pure pass rusher. 
and maybe they do help Williams get his sack numbers up a little bit. That's kind of something that's always been a bugaboo for him. So I don't know if I'd say 2018 numbers, but uh, I think they're definitely going to be up from what they were last year. Yeah, I believe they'll be up from what they were last year. The, I mean, last year the Ravens, the, the way to attack the Ravens' defense was to get the damn ball out as fast as humanly possible. Uh, I have not. I, actually, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to try and go look later, and I'll tweet it out if I find it into t- the time of release by quarterbacks from the snap to get the ball out as quickly as possible. Because I would guarantee, knowing how much the Ravens blitz and just watching based on what I saw in film. Teams want to get the ball out. They want to dump the ball underneath. They don't want to hold the ball against the Ravens. Those blitzes, they bring a lot of numbers, um, things like that. Didn't feel like there was, was a ton of opportunity for quarterbacks to really sit back for a long time and pick the Ravens apart. Um, so I think a lot of the sack numbers have to do with opportunity. If the quarterback gets the ball in two and a half seconds, you're not going to sack him. You'll sack him one out of 100 times. Uh, the fastest sacks in the NFL on clean blitzes. I think the fastest one was 1.79 seconds last year by a DB. I know Yannick Ngakwe had two really freaky plays where he blew right through, uh, which is part of his game that makes him so fascinating. But long story short, teams aren't going to be able to attack underneath now. Uh, They've got Peters. They've got Humphrey. They've got Smith. If those guys are all healthy, Tavon Young back too. uh, Pass adept linebackers, potentially with Patrick Queen. Patrick Queen, LJ Fort, Malik Harrison, uh, Chuck Clark playing up in the box. I, I don't see the quick passes being able to be as effective as they were. Um, the Ravens defense is going to be better than they were last year, in my opinion. And that was a good unit, especially in the second half. But I do think sack numbers have to go up if quarterbacks are forced to hold the ball longer. And specifically, guys like Campbell, guys like Wolf, guys like Williams, those are guys that take double teams. You need to double team Clay's Campbell or he's going to beat your blocker way, way, way more than you want him to. You need to double team Brandon Williams or he's going to shove your guy into the quarterback's lap. Um, so that's going to create a catch-22 for offenses. So long story short, yes, I see those sack numbers going up. Can Anthony Averett turn it around and look like a quality cornerback next season? For me, Anthony Averett plays the ball really poorly in the air. He's really good until the ball is in the air, does not do a good job turning around, getting his head around, um, adjusting to the ball, adjusting the receiver. I find him at this point to be very young, to be very fast, and to be a quality you know, number four cornerback. He's probably the fifth, maybe sixth cornerback on the Ravens this year, and maybe he ends up being one of those guys who gets a lot better with age, but I don't see him really turning into a, you know, a confident quality starter uh, anytime soon. I'm trying to think of a mid to late round guy at corner that they've drafted that have sort of developed over the years as opposed to just coming in and being good right away because they've had that happen a few times where Tavon Young came in in 2016. Maybe Kerry Williams. I don't even know if uh, I did they draft him? him. No, I think he was drafted by the Titans. Let me check. Yeah, I don't think they had dra- I think they signed Kerry Williams. Yeah, Kerry Williams is seventh round by the Titans. Yeah, I mean, that could still be used as a point, but I, I'm just trying to think of like a guy that was just there for a couple of years, learned the ropes and then got good. I feel like with corner you kind of maybe know a little early on as a, like what the guy is going to be for the rest of his career. And that's probably true at a lot of positions, but I feel like specifically with corner, it's definitely with the Ravens. We haven't seen a ton of guys that were just sort of stashed for a while and then wound up being like really good or even like, you know, rotational starters. So I'm not sure it's going to happen for him, but yeah, you know, I think he's good enough depth wise, uh, physical has a good pedigree from Alabama. Uh, not a huge fan of the way that he plays the ball in the air. As you've mentioned, that was something that I noticed from day one with him. And uh, since then, I kind of haven't really been swayed on it at all. But what is he going to be in his third year here? Yes. Yeah, so it feels like it's going to be – it feels like one way or the other we're going to find out this year. I'm looking through late-round DBs. It's like Asa Jackson, eh, he was all right. Chucky Brown, eh, 
He um, had some moments, but yeah, not good ultimately. Yeah, they they were just depth guys, and you ideally love them as a depth guy, but don't want them to be your starter, and that's the way it feels with Averett. Um, I do want Averett in the slot. I think he has a little bit of bulldog in him. I think he is could be a remarkably good second slot option to Tavon Young in the event that Tavon Young, who has not been a m- model of durability so far in his career, goes down. Uh, to see what Anthony Ever could do there would be awesome. And he had really strong. I mean, he was a really strong cornerback at Alabama. He was worth the Ravens draft pick. Um, he got picked on a little bit, but he, uh, that's what happens when you're playing with Marlon Humphrey, one of the top five, ten cornerbacks in the NFL. Uh, it, you're going to end up being the weak link if you're not really, really, really stepping up. And that's what we saw a little bit. Him and Maurice Kennedy both a little bit last year were – uh, picked on because there was just that was the place to go with the football against the Baltimore Ravens at the time, which led to this a trade for Marcus Peters. All that stuff we've talked about that a million times. Have Moving we ever on. have we ever talked about Anthony Averett's nickname from Alabama? No. Smooth. Oh, it's a good nickname. That is a good nickname. I feel so, like if they just stop calling him, if they if they start calling him Smooth Averett and they start calling Amon uh, Biggie Marshall, I feel like he got two future starters right there. I absolutely believe it. I am so curious to see what Amon Marshall can do this year. Had some great, 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 great tape at USC at times. Uh, moving on, though, Otavio Moller. Chances of Matabuike starting over Wolf by the end of the season. For me, I wouldn't say starting, but taking you know an equal snap share is maybe the, the biggest thing I could see. Wolf is not an incredibly durable guy in the last couple of years. He did come off a big elbow injury. He looks healthy but didn't get a big contract because of that um i, I, I can see i i, I kind of expect matabuike to end up taking you know 30 40 of snaps by the end of the year yeah i think especially with the wolf health situation that you touched on uh it's going to be imperative that you keep him somewhat rested up for a playoff run because i feel like that's part of the reason why you bring in such a veteran presence like that that has gone on to win a super bowl and has done it in a tough environment like denver uh, I think he can give you a lot of good stuff in the playoffs. So we saw with Ingram, he got worked a little bit hard and uh, wasn't really available in the way that he should have been for the playoff game. I think if you spell Wolf a little bit uh, with the depth of guys that you have, you really do have a war chest to pick from with Matabuke and uh, Dalen Mack there. So yeah, keep him fresh. And uh, if that means getting uh, Matabuke in there, then I'm all for it. Absolutely. Moving on, we got Z Bloxton asking, chances the Ravens keep Judon, Marlon Humphrey, and Ronnie Stanley long-term? I don't, I mean, Judon is not, I don't want to say he's not a spring chicken, but he's, you know, he was an old rookie. He was almost 24 when he was drafted, uh, just under 24 when he was drafted. And that franchise tag feels like the road to giving him maybe a two-year deal before some of those other contracts start to kick in and see what they can get out of him and then maybe letting him part ways. Uh, the difficult thing is just, you know, he is such a perfect fit for that Sam position, dropping into coverage, being as mobile as he is, as big as he is. And I mean, a decent pass rusher. It's a little bit difficult. I'd say maybe a little higher, but I don't see Ronnie Stanley or Marlon Humphrey going anywhere. The only first round pick that has been a high quality caliber player that I've ever seen walk is CJ Mosley. And I think it's just because Eric DaCosta valued positional value and, you know, sees Ronnie Stanley, sees Marlon Humphrey and says, I want to pay the tackle in the corner who, analytically speaking, impact football games a lot more in the end with quality play than that middle linebacker. Well, unless it's freaking Luke Keekley, which as good as CJ Mosley was, I would not put him on Keekley's level, not even close, to be honest. But um, yeah, I, I think there's, you know, 
a decent chance that maybe Judon tag, tags along, but I don't see Marlon Humphrey going anywhere. I don't see Ronnie Stanley going anywhere. Both of those guys seem to have a lot of you know, raven pride and sense of community and things like that. And I value that when looking at them and the way they've spoken to the media about potential long-term contracts. And I don't see the Ravens letting those two guys go anywhere, but Judon obviously very much up in the air. Is it July 19th that they have to negotiate a new long-term deal with them before they're not allowed to anymore? Yeah, somewhere around there. So I feel like that deadline, if they do get something done with him, then I would ultimately weirdly expect one of Stanley or Humphrey to walk eventually, uh, which I don't want to see happen. So if I had to pick uh, two out of the three, I'd pick the other two guys and let Judon walk. So I think that date there, whatever it is, July 19th, maybe sometime in July, I think that's ultimately going to be pretty telling uh, about what they want to do moving forward. I think if they let him play out this year on the tag, I don't know if they try to tag him again, if they can do that. Um I think he'd probably ultimately just be walking after this year and you uh, refocus your attention to the other two guys because I do feel like they are the uh, the two that I'd rather keep in the picture. And I think DaCosta would probably agree uh, with a bowl of truth serum, uh, you know, injected right. into his veins. Right. The difficult part of that equation is just they don't have any edge rushers other than Jalen Ferguson, who is not really an edge rusher kind of, uh, under contract after this year. So difficult, difficult decision there, uh, difficult but, I mean, if Judon has a huge year, plays under the franchise tag, Ravens do well, you know, win a couple playoff games, He, it feels like he's been on the fence between sweet and sour with the Ravens, um, not really ever going one way or the other, being very much, you know, intentionally on the fence. So this year will be a huge indicator. So I guess we're a little bit uh, premature in being able to predict that something like that. But money is coming in with all the guys, all the young guys, and it's going to be difficult someone's going to walk. They can't keep literally everyone as much as we want them to. So we shall see. Moving on, five-time gold glover Adam Jones, 357, asks, how do the Ravens handle zone, and how can they light up the Chiefs? How do we? Sl- how do they slow down Pat, as in Patrick Mahomes? Um, handling zone, a big part of that for me was personnel. And you can get guys, you can get fast enough to run through zone. That's why you don't want to play zone against the Chiefs because Tyreek Hill will run through a zone. Hollywood Brown, multiple times at Oklahoma, was recorded hitting 23 miles per hour in-game. This past year, he only hit 20.15, somewhere right around there, I think. Uh, so him getting back up to speed, being able to do that, running through zone is one thing. Duvernay, I, mean, we were talk- I was talking with Mike Crawford, who uh, writes for Russell Street Report. Happy Great birthday. Night of fall. Happy birthday to Mike Crawford yesterday in retrospect of this podcast being recorded, whatever, Thursday's his birthday. Um, great guy, great follow. Abu Kari, A-B-U-K-A-R-I, great follow. Does a lot of film breakdowns on Raven stuff. But um, he was talking about how he really likes DuVernay for a lot of reasons and uh, how he can help against man. But I like DuVernay because he he is fast enough and has track speed to the point where Hollywood doesn't have to be the decoy. You can use DuVernay to run coverage off, run zone off, run a high safety off, and let Hollywood work the intermediate area, which he is super-duper adept at. Um, So I think DuVernay is key in that as well. And Lamar Jackson, you know, he's pretty damn good at picking apart that intermediate area of zone, but playing, playing man against him is just so lethally futile, I guess mortally futile, that I would expect an anomaly as far as teams playing zone against the Ravens this year. And having J.K. Dobbins, another fast guy, having Justice Hill, having Marquise Brown, Mark Andrews, a pretty damn fast tight end, um, all those guys able to run through zone and 
uh, really just work. And, and part of it is Lamar going through his progressions, looking off coverage. And that's something he has been crazy, crazy strong at, even back to his days at Louisville. So him con- continuing to develop in that area helps against zone a lot. Uh, on the other end, how do you slow down Patrick Mahomes? Hit him, I guess. Hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him. Uh, get in his face. Don't let him roll out and buy time. As much as people think Lamar Jackson's great out of the pocket, I really think that's one of his weakest areas, whereas Patrick Mahomes is Aaron Rodgers in his prime plus potentially outside of the pocket, so really just forcing him to stay in the pocket, not letting those play after the plays happen, and uh, playing man instead of zone, so kind of the polar opposite strategy of the way you want to play the Ravens. Yeah, going to that that one rate, you know, kind of off the bat, I, I honestly don't have much of an idea much of an idea as you were hitting on there. I think he Mahomes has potential to be the best I've ever seen uh, at the quarterback position. I definitely contended that that was Aaron Rodgers circa like 2014. But what I'm seeing from Mahomes right now is like that plus like you mentioned. Uh, and he is just, you know, absolutely dominant in every single way. Uh, so maybe it is just kind of hitting him, trying to get him off base, trying to rattle him a little bit. Uh, I can't really think of that many losses he's, he's even had in his career, but the ones that he has had, uh, it feels like he's been sort of rattled a little bit, thrown off platform. As far as the first part of the question there, yeah, zone. So like part of, you know, picking apart a zone, at least like a deep cover three zone, like somebody like Seattle runs, uh, it's either the deep shot, like you mentioned, or it's going underneath and forcing like the strong safety or the weak side linebacker on either side of the defense to like make a decision. So that's part of why I really like the Duvernay point that you brought up there. Like imagine lining up Duvernay and Hollywood next to each other and you've got like a strong safety coming down, having to make a choice between those two and they go one of the two ways. Well, you got a quick intermediate pass there and that's like a nice eight yard chunk or with their athleticism, they could turn it into even more. So I think it's sort of taking what the defense gives you a little bit. Lamar can maybe be a little bit more patient in that respect and uh, just using the weapons at his disposal, like a DuVernay or a, uh, a Hollywood or even a Snead. I think getting him involved a little bit more would help with uh, just going into those soft areas, you know, underneath where the deep safeties are going to be making those less athletic guys make decisions regarding where they're going to be running and then uh, just ultimately fooling them. It takes a lot of patience. It's not easy, but uh, I think as Lamar matures more as a quarterback, he's going to be uh, showcasing more of an ability to do so alongside Greg Roman kind of helping him get to that point. Absolutely. And part of what, you know, Lamar's last year was mechanics, 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 mechanics. I think he is way more confident in his uh, mechanics at this point in his career now. So obviously keeping those sharp, but then being able to adjust at the line of scrimmage, he's talked about his mental aspect of his game and, and having Marquise Brown. Marquise Brown averaged 6.4 yards of cushion, according to Next Gen Stats, uh, at the line of scrimmage, meaning that corners, on average, were 6.4 yards away from him when the ball was snapped. you got to be able to check into a slant. you got to be able to check into a screen, uh, expanding against screens, things like that. And I believe it was PFF I was going through, and they were talking about how to stop every team as best as you can, and... Uh, we've touched on it. The, the conflict with the Ravens is that Lamar is way worse against cover two uh, and quarters or two high safety concepts than he is against single high safety concepts. Um, his his EPA, QBR, CPOE, all that stuff is a little bit lower against two high safety concepts. But the Ravens murder you on the ground if you have two safeties. You want to stack the box. You want to make things tight. Um, so definitely all of those things. Great points by Jake as well. And that is a little bit of insight into what the Ravens could potentially do with some zone and maybe stop the Chiefs to an extent. Uh, B-Rose 931, who do you think makes a bigger leap next year between Fergie and Bowser? I'm more of a uh, will-I-am guy. but 
Yeah, same, same, same. I would pay. I'll, I'll Venmo you five dollars if you can answer in the next five seconds who the long-haired, uh, light-skinned guy. I only know Fergie. Well, I I've never known that guy's name, but he always had so much energy. Always the lo- super long, thin-haired, uh, like light-skinned dude. In- got, got some bangers. Yeah, couple bangers. Like who? There, there's four people in Black Eyed Peas, if I'm not mistaken. I think there might even be more. Like five? Let's let's see. Let's who? See. I, who could say? I mean, it's literally impossible to even look up. It is so hard to look up. Let's see. Black Eyed Peas. Uh, Jim. The Black Eyed Peas is an American musical group consisting of rappers Will I Am, APLD, App, <laughs> Taboo, Taboo. And That's J- it. J Taboo. Ray Soul. J Ray Soul doesn't even have a Wikipedia link. Like you know how they have the link to their like where their name uh, would take them to their page. J Ray Soul does not have a link. That's insane. Originally an alternative hip hop group, they subsequently changed oh, their musical. Oh, so sound. okay, so they've had three kind of ousts. So their Fergie is no longer in the Black Eyed Peas. Kim Hill. Wait, so we're operating on the assumption that the Black Eyed Peas are still putting music out. I didn't even know that. Oh, they they have a number one right now. What? I, I they have like a number one right now. I got to turn the fucking radio on, man. I never listen to the radio anymore. That's why, like, when I'm working out, I've been trying to use like like current pop playlist stuff sometimes, and it's like a lot of it is like EDM ish, which I don't mind when I'm working out. And like the Black Eyed Peas have, look, let's see here, Black Eyed Peas have Ritmo, which is their number one song on Apple Music, came out. Featuring J Balvin in 2019. Oh, where's recent music? I don't know, man. They're... Well, maybe that's maybe that's the most recent one you could think of. Mamacita, Mamacita, that's what it is. Was released April 9th, 2020, and is like very high on the charts. That's kind of sick. It is. They've been crushing for a long time. Big. I was a huge Black Eyed Peas guy when I was or kid when I was like nine, 10, 11 years old. Where's the love? That music video was was awesome. Yeah, meet me halfway. You know, some some real bangers there. Meet me halfway is spectacular. Anyway, Fergie, Jalen Ferguson, Tyus Bowser. That's a tough one because I feel like the growth for Jalen for Tyus Bowser uh, is being like a good starter and having like a ten sack season, whereas Jalen Ferguson being a good rotational player and having a five sack season, those are like equal growth. So it's like which one of those scenarios do you see more likely to happen? And I feel like it's Ferguson having a five-sack season and Bowser having a 10-sack season, something of that sort. Um, but I, I think that Bowser, I'm more confident in him to make that leap. Uh, it just might not turn out statistically, but he is a nitty-gritty guy. I really hope the Ravens extend him for super cheap right now. That would be awesome if it was like a Nick Boyle, Tavon Young, Pat Ricard situation. He can play Judon's role very well he was the best cover linebacker in his draft class including inside linebackers watching him in coverage at houston was awesome Um, i would love to see the ravens give him like a three-year 30 million dollar deal or something right now and i think it would totally pay off in like two years i think specializing them in different roles is really where you're going to maximize them i don't think it necessarily needs to be a comparison so like you mentioned his coverage ability at houston he's done a good amount of that in the nfl i think he had an interception in like his first two games playing for the ravens so right i think maximizing that for him and then maximizing just sort of that pure power rusher type type stuff for ferguson and uh sort of you know kind of developing the finesse moves and stuff that you need to be an adequate uh, pass rusher at the next level is what it's going to need to be for him. So I don't necessarily even see them as deterring one another from progressing because they're sort of doing different things at a similar posi- position. 
Absolutely. And Ferguson is like, he has two really strong pillars right now. It's his bull rush as a pass rusher and his like long arm and his ability to bite down the line on inside run concepts does not have a ton of finesse to his pass rush does not have a strong ability to hold the edge. Uh, he kind of got obliterated in that 49ers game and they had to start uh, moving players around and trying to get someone else out on the edge. I can't recall exactly what they did off the top of my head for some reason, but I know Ferguson had to get to, Oh, Jihad Ward. They had to put Jihad Ward out at outside linebacker uh, to start holding the edge a little bit more, but that was a whole, whole cat and mouse game. I could get way too in depth with, with the 49ers. That was a crazy good matchup, but uh, yeah, those two guys, definitely. I see growth from both of them. I just, I just really think Tyus Bowser is uh, likely to take off. So moving on, uh, OT OV asks, how would your, how would your front seven be in third and long? Mine would be Bowser, McPhee, Campbell, Judon, Clark, and Queen. Um, I think the ideal one is just probably like pretty chalk, like Campbell, Judon, uh, I guess Bowser, Matiboyk, or someone of the sort. And then yeah, Queen, Clark down in the box. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's just a ton of different combinations. It's 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 a difficult question because it's just different answers, different personnel. We're going to see a lot of different combinations. The Ravens have a lot of different combinations for third and long, uh, which is tying back to another question. How Patrick Mahomes is so damn good. You got to beat him being multiple on third and long. And that's why the Chiefs were all kind of snarkily laughing at the fourth and 15 thing because they're like, we will do that every time. As they should. Yeah, give me, I guess, Clark, Fort, Queen, uh, Bowser, and then just Campbell, Williams, and Wolf. Something of the sort. So moving on, ZJ Batman, what do you think is happening during the online OTAs besides the playbook? So our boy Project Pat actually just uh, tweeted out <clears throat> an email from John Harbaugh, and it read, Ravens, from Coach John Harbaugh. Ravens, today the NAACP and Partners in Civil Rights and Social Justice are calling for a national day of mourning in recognition of George Floyd's funeral. At 3.45 p.m. Eastern Time, the NAACP is asking for everyone to take a moment of silence for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. And as a team, we've decided to honor this moment with a team recognition over Zoom. Hopefully you can be there and I encourage us to have our kids, wives, nephews, nieces, brothers, and sisters to join us in silence on the Zoom call. Please join. Um, Harbaugh, every single year with the new rookies, including the undrafted class, takes them to, I'm going to sound incorrect because I can't recall the exact same exact name, but I believe it is like the uh, Museum of Black History and takes them every single year very early in camp. I think because rookies report first, he drives them to Gettysburg a lot and drives them there so that they can kind of go see and get in tune with kind of black history and all those great things. Harbaugh and the Harbaugh family have been unequivocally, you know, one of the leading forces, especially Jack Harbaugh. And then Jim now has really taken over the reins uh, in trying to advance, you know, black guys in football and in executive roles and leadership and, and doing his very best to be uh, very socially conscious of his players, of their emotions and trying to make them grow as men. I think that a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of black players would say the same about John and their father, Jack uh, guys that do not take any of that lightly at all and do not tolerate any sort of, you know, uh, kind of pussy footing around it. So I would expect a lot to be going on right now. I know that they try to have a different leader, on their zoom meetings every day from what I've heard from players, uh, whether that's, you know, Ed Reed or, 
a religious figure or a, you know corporate executive or a veteran, anything of the sort. I know that. So Harbaugh, obviously, always a huge leadership guy and is doing a lot right now. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff about like it's very much not like X's and O's with the uh, the young guys at this point. They're expected to learn all that stuff back in their hotel rooms. It's more getting to know one another, kind of like the first couple of days of summer camp, if you ever went, like just sort of icebreaker type stuff. And then also uh, important stuff uh, such as like rookie symposium uh, type, you know, things that you were touching on there. They like to have former players uh, come in a lot. Like they, I think they had Doomerville and a bunch of other guys come last year. Uh, can't do that this year, obviously. So it's been a lot of Zoom with uh, guys that you mentioned, like Ed Reed. And uh, basically just a lot of big picture stuff, like teaching these guys how to get their financials in order. Uh, and a lot of stuff that maybe some of these dudes don't really have a ton of experience with because maybe they uh, only went to college to really play ball and they were only there for a couple of years. And uh, football has kind of their, been their career path for their whole life. So just sort of preparing them uh, for you know life in football, life beyond football, stuff like that. So I think it's a very cool sort of big picture way to start things off with the rookies. Uh, that's typically how it's done. And uh, like you mentioned, taking them to Gettysburg, taking them to the uh, Black History Museum. And uh, yeah, just sort of doing the big picture, kind of interesting team building, fun stuff. Absolutely. And Harbaugh seems like he's very big into the, you know, the show side of, of being in the NFL and, and treating it kind of, you know, the same way as uh, almost like remember the Titans and things like that and then making them have field trips and stuff like that. So I think they're having a lot of fun. Finally, B-Rose 931 at it again. I really appreciate the both of you speaking out about systemic racism, hashtag Black Lives Matter. We, you know, I'm, I'm going to read and I'm going to read what a PFT commenter from part of my take Barstool said the other day. And I know that Jake probably feels very similarly and agrees with what he said, but I think it summed up kind of how I feel and, and how Jake feels maybe too with what we do with this podcast and our platform. Um, where is this freaking PFT? There he is. Uh, he put it very, very eloquently, which is always hilarious when he does, but this is not funny. He said, I can't in good conscience make a comfortable living talking about mostly black men and their profession and then turn my back and ignore them when they choose to discuss a subject that might be uncomfortable to hear. This social media post isn't going to solve it, and it doesn't make me feel better about the world that we're posting it in. But if it helps one person understand that I've got their back, then it's all a bonus from there. Everyone stay safe and try to help someone today. I thought that was a really, you know, nice sentiment and appropriately said that I, you know, feel the same way. I spent a lot of money. We've uh, built ourselves a, a little platform here and spent a lot of time talking about, you know, black men and black culture and references that we make to movies and things. And, and Jake and I have both been heavily influenced by black culture. So we are here. If there's anyone who wants to talk about anything at all, DM us, message us, uh, tweet at us, you know, whatever you want to do, we're here. We stand with anyone who feels that way at all. And yeah, we, uh, I generally just support people having the right to be treated like a good person or be treated like an asshole. If they're an asshole or a good person, regardless of any other factors. But I definitely, extra feel for the black community and they're hurt right now because you can tell they're hurting yeah definitely it's a it's a touchy thing and it's like two white guys that are like podcasters that you know we just have regular jobs uh it does feel a little weird sort of jumping into the fray on this stuff sometimes because i feel like it's not something that i'm necessarily educated on that i don't want to like come out and try to be you know this face of it all necessarily that's maybe a weird word but uh I, there's maybe some trepidation in that i don't want to people to think that I'm maybe hijacking this or something, but I've right with posts like that and other posts, 
it, it has kind of gotten me to a point where I'm like, you know what, I do have like a little bit of a platform here, however small that is. And in that sense, it's sort of, I don't know if it's my responsibility, but in that sense, I have a desire to come out and, you know, share what I'm thinking. And uh, what I'm thinking is that black people have been mistreated for way too long and misunderstood for way too long and not heard for way too long. And the least you can do if you're somebody like us, you know, white, middle class, grew up with privilege, is just open your ears and listen and uh, try to gain the perspective on why these things are happening. You know, I'm not one of these people that thinks rioting is this great thing, but rather than looking at rioting happening and saying, oh, this is terrible, this needs to stop, maybe rather than doing that, look at why it's happening and say, okay, this is why it's happening. We need to do this to change. So as cynical as some people are about like social media and the effect that it can have on stuff like this, uh, I would say just sort of open your mind to it a little bit because for me, it's kind of, it almost reminds me of like mental health awareness where people talk about that kind of stuff on Twitter or social media, whatever. And if people are cynical about it, I, that's not something I agree with because if it gets to one person, literally just one person and it affects them, it causes them to maybe change their mind in a positive direction on it, then it's done its job. And I think that's true in this case. So for all the people that were maybe a little cynical about the whole Blackout Tuesday, what is a black box going to do? I get what you're saying. And particularly if you are a black person and you've been fighting this battle for however long and now you're just finally starting to see people maybe try to join the ranks along with you and you feel like they're Johnny come lately or they're not doing it in the proper way or like whatever it is. Like I would just say like maybe just allow people to process this, process this in the way that they ultimately can and just make whatever little difference they can because every little difference helps. And this is a situation where you mentioned, like, pardon my take, like, Arian Foster was on there a couple days ago at this point. And mm -hmm. he mentioned that this is not something that's just going to happen overnight. Like, we're not even really talking about ourselves right now. This is about the generations after us. This is about our children. Generations before us and after us. Yeah, exactly. So it's about dismantling the stuff that essentially the generations before us were taught that we were taught and changing the narrative and, you know, essentially just changing reality for the generation of kids that we're going to raise so that we're not raised to think X things about minorities and black people. We're not raised to just give the police a pass for, you know, X, Y, and Z. And again, I'm not anti-police or anything. I'm just in the camp where I think a lot needs to change from a systemic deep rooted point of view with the way that they do things. And uh, I think just stuff like this is going to help facilitate that. And like I said, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a long, long, long process. Uh, but you know, you had, the Civil War and slavery, effectively, you had Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement gain civil rights. Now, I think we're seeing something where it's not just a law that you can't have slaves. It's not just a law that black people have civil rights. It's going to be a reality that they're treated and thought of equally. At least that's what I hope. And uh, yeah, it's not going to happen overnight. But open your mind, try to have the perspective of people that have been mistreated and try to pass that down to the next generation. And hopefully, long term, it will affect that change. Absolutely. And, you know, in the end, as Jake said, you know, we have ears, we have shoulders for you, whoever you are. Uh, regardless, we both have gone through tough times. Everyone does. And we're all ears. We've got a shoulder for you to cry on, talk to, punch, whatever you want to do. And we have had um, some people reach out already on Twitter, so we do appreciate you all. And, uh, yeah, we want to encourage that. So let's keep the conversation Encourage going. positivity, encourage love, encourage good conversations, encourage progress. That's what we're all about. And, uh, you know, finally, all lives cannot matter if black lives do not matter because, to me, they do. And I know Jake feels the same way. We love all of our listeners. 
we love all of you guys. We hope you guys are spreading love, spreading positivity, staying safe, and we wish you the best. Yep. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Call your parents. Really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Podcast Beatdown. You can follow me at Jake Luke. That's L-O-U-Q-U-E. You can follow Spencer at Ravens for Dummies. That's the number four. Like I said, really appreciate you guys listening and have yourselves a great weekend. Peace. All right, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is my good friend, Coach Anthony Ronaldo, who has been all around the MIAA uh, locally in Maryland State High Schools, as well as a tight ends coach at St. Anselm College up in New Hampshire. He recently became the offensive coordinator for Boys Ladin. Anth, my friend, how you feeling? Feeling good, man. Happy to be here. Uh, thank you guys for having me on today. I appreciate it. This is a great distraction from a lot of the stuff going on right now. Absolutely. Tell the people where to find you before we get started. Plug yourself, social media, what you're doing, anything you want to uh, talk about, my friend. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Um, please follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Coach Renato. Um, I'm team follow back. Also, uh, recently started uh, chartering to your waters a little bit with a little bit of blogging. Um, CoachRenato.com. Just talking everything, ball, life in between. Absolutely. We appreciate you coming on to discuss various things with us. We got quite a fun smorgasbord of topics. So, Anth, you've been bouncing around the MIAA and then went up to St. Anselm in the college ranks, as I mentioned. Give our listeners an idea of your experience in high school and college football and how basically you started out saying, I want to become a coach through becoming the offensive play caller at Boys Latin, which you recently got. And congratulations on that, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, it's been a hell of a ride. Um, this is going to be year seven for me. Um, so basically it all kind of started, um, my sophomore year at Towson university as an undergrad student. Um, you know, I was studying teacher education in the PE program and, um, you know, basically like a lot of other former high school athletes, you know, when the careers end, it's kind of like what's next. And, um, you know, I always loved football. But it wasn't until I didn't have it in my life that I realized I was in love with football. And there's a difference. Um, so 19 years old, I uh, started reaching out to schools in the area, um, you know, Baltimore County Public High Schools. Uh, the whole private school concept was like really foreign to me. Um, so, you know, I didn't really know anyone in the MIAA or at anyone in any independent schools. So I'm hitting up like Delaney High, Towson High, Parkville High. And uh, some of the ADs and the administrators were getting back to me and they're basically like, hey, you seem like a really good, like qualified, you know, young candidate. However, due to, you know, certain laws, you have to be 21, um, you know, so it's like, OK, where am I now? What do I want to do? I don't just want to wait and idle for two years. Um, so I just started shooting my shot, man. I sent out uh, emails to like basically, um, you know, all the Baltimore area private schools, Gilman, McDonough. Uh, Boys Latin, Calvert Hall, Loyola Blakefield, um, and a couple others. And Donald Davis, um, the former head coach at Calvert Hall who just left, um, was the only one to hit me back, you know. Um, and that just speaks to the type of guy he is. Uh, so he brought me in, and, uh, you know, I'm all dapped up for an interview here, you know, sharp, dressed the nines. And, uh, you know, very informally, he walks into uh, the AD's office at Calvert Hall. I'm sitting there, you know, looking sharp, ready to go. And he just says, Tone, walk with me. <laughs> and uh the short little black dude comes in with this this like aura of energy and swagger and i was like i knew right away i was like this is the guy i want to learn from like this is the guy i want to like grow with um 
and we just walked a loop at Calvert Hall, just um, a circle around the, the academic buildings in the middle there. And um, we just talked about like life and stuff. And after about 45 minutes, he's like, yeah, I think this is going to work out. Um, we hold strength and conditioning on these kind of days. Um, you know, if you could be here, great. If not, all good. Um, and this was in like December of 2013. Yeah, that sounds about right. So um, it, was, it was right right as the year was ending going into 2014. So when I took that, like, if you can come, great. I, like, I took that as, like, mandatory for me. So I made, sure, I made sure I was there. Um, and, you know, because it was a little intimidating. When, you, when you're an outsider, um, you know, on an independent school campus, if you're not an alum, if you don't know someone, like, in, you know, intimately within the program, you kind of got to earn it, you know? Um, so I was like, definitely like on my P's and Q's, I was just trying to be a sponge and that's exactly what I was. Um, so I was an analyst and assistant, uh, for the varsity, uh, defensive coordinator. So on game, you know, game days, I'm up in the booth, charting plays, writing down tendencies, <coughs> excuse me, identifying formations and stuff, and just relaying that to the DC in between series. And then, um, the other days of the week, I was a freshman coach. So I was, you know, working with the incoming freshmen, really molding them, just doing like, you know, fundamental technique stuff. Um, but that ended up being a huge, huge help to me later in my career. Um, did that for two years. I kind of get used to the landscape, you know, the recruiting process, how cutthroat it is in the Baltimore area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got, I got the lay of the land with that. I got used to um, networking with college coaches. Obviously, Calvert Hall is a you know, pretty prominent program and they send a lot of dudes to college for free or for close to it, you know? So, um, you know, brushing shoulders with guys like James Franklin and just really like kind of like taking everything in as much as possible. Um, and then year three, I got my own position group finally on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, I left the dark side on defense and I uh, was coaching the wide receivers and I learned a ton about, um, you know, pass game and um, offensive structure, uh, play sequencing. Um, from my offensive coordinator at the time, uh, Mike Williams, who is uh, the quarterback's coach at St. Francis Academy mm-hmm. um, downtown. So um, it was great. Um, after year three, uh, this is right around the time when I'm graduating college and, you know, your boy needed a job. So basically, um, I'm just applying, um, you know, to schools left and right. And uh, a guy named Josh Ward had just got named the head coach at a school, uh, Concordia Prep. Um, never heard of it. Yeah, I feel like Concordia <laughs> is not that well known. And I mean, we don't have to tell anyone about the program down there. I mean, that just kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was formerly Baltimore Lutheran. Um, you know, they had to rebrand. They were like at a pretty pretty risky point and um, getting close to losing um, a lot of students. You know, it, it wasn't a, a great situation. Um, but all credit to Coach Ward. I mean, him and I got in there and um, we had to get really creative on how to get kids in the building, how to rejuvenate life and how to make it a competitive football program. So um, ended up leaving Calvert Hall, um, got the OC title at Concordia with a great teaching job in the building, which is like the golden ticket. If you're mm-hmm. a high school football coach and your deal comes with a teaching job in the building, that is gold. Like, um, so it, it was cool. And it's literally, was, a me- it's pretty much a meal ticket. That's like, okay, I'm full time, got full time. I'm around. I have job stability. Yeah, and not only that, like little things, like you never have to worry about being late to practice or um, like having access to technology for like classroom sessions with your guys. So um, it was great. Um, 
you know, obviously a challenge, which was like, all right, let's go. Like, this is going to make me or break me kind of thing. And I always kind of knew that eventually I did want to take that jump to the college level. So I figured if anything, it would be a hell of a talking point in an interview somewhere down the line. Um, so um, we recruited our tails off. Um, you know, we, we got a lot of kids um, excited about playing ball. And year one, we had a whole bunch of kids that had never played before, let alone had never played together. Um, so it was just, you know, a matter of fostering like team cohesion and keeping everything like really, really simple. So taking um, like the bulk of a playbook and just like cutting it in like half and then maybe cutting it in half once again. And like that's that's what you're going to run on Friday night. Um, but ultimately, like you got to run what your kids can do. Like it doesn't matter what level. If you want to be successful, you can't be like, oh, I want to run this scheme or that scheme. Like you have to run what your natural resources allow you to. That's something that we talk about a lot and we talk about. NFL football a lot, but yeah, like you said, at all levels, it is just, it feels like that's been something that has come to kind of surface a lot more in the last five or 10 years, instead of forcing kids into the scheme, building the scheme around the kids. And if you're not doing that today, it feels like you are so far behind the eight ball at any level. Yeah. And it definitely limits your recruiting too. If you, if you're, you know, hard set in your ways, oh, we're running this, you know, we, we're a gap scheme team. I only want big kids that can block down. Like you're, you're going to lose out on, on great, re- really good human beings. A and be really talented, you know, football players. Um, but year one, we were right around the 500 mark at Concordia. Um, you know, we took our lumps. Um, and then uh, year two, we just we just took off. Um, had a top 10 rushing offense in the state. Um, had a nine-win season, went to a championship. And that ended up being the, uh, the kicker to get Concordia from the C Conference to the MIAAB, mm-hmm. um, which, was, which was good, you know. Uh, that was part of the goal from day one. Um, right around December of 2018, like right at, right around Christmas time when the kids were taking their finals is when I resigned. Um, I just felt like I'd done pretty much all I could there. And, um, you know, before I started getting, you know, older later into my twenties, I wanted to really kind of check out this college thing. So, um, pro tip, uh, don't ever quit a job unless you have one lined up. (laughs) Of course. I, uh, I didn't do that. I, uh, I resigned and like I said, right around Christmas time and, um, the AFCA convention, which is like an annual, like it, it's, it's pretty much just a giant ass party um, for college coaches and, and high school coaches uh, from all over to get together. And it's in a different city in the South every year. And, um, you know, it's good. There's networking, there's breakout sessions, and also there's interviewing. So I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll be fine. You know, I got this resume, you know, it's, it's great. You know, I've done a lot of things at a young age. I'm going to be fine. Um, a little foolish on my behalf there. Um, I interviewed actually down at the convention, uh, right, right in January of 19. Um, it was for a D three school in Texas that came with a graduate assistantship, um, which is exactly what I wanted. You know, I wasn't expecting to jump right into college and, you know, uh, become the next like young, hot thing coming up. Like I understand that there's a ladder to climb. I was respectful of that. And I wanted a free master's degree. <laughs> right. So I was, I was like, hell yeah. You're like, I'll be a GA. Um, Long story short, um, you know, like the vibe wasn't right. The energy in the room just wasn't right. Um, I had an opportunity to take that graduate assistantship. Um, but just, you know, going back to trusting your gut is just like kind of like, I don't know about all this. Um, so it was back to it was back to Maryland. Uh, no job. Um, I gave notice to leave my house like January 15th. <laughs> it is now right. January. It's January 14th. And I'm on a plane back from San Antonio. And uh, I'm like, OK, well. 
let's get uh let's get creative here um so over the course of like the next like five to six weeks i was just you know couch surfing a little bit um you know every single day on the job boards you know networking doing everything i could hey coaches wanted to follow up you know going through like my shoebox of like business cards that had gotten going back to like 2014 right and um eventually i ended up getting um getting this uh this lead on St. Anselm college on footballscoop.com, which if anyone's listening and, and you're, you know, you want to break into the industry, um, check out footballscoop.com. There's great opportunities for everyone from like strength guys to high school to college. Um, so, I mean, I have an Excel sheet. I still have it. I mean, there's literally like 76 schools in there that I had like applied to. And like, I highlighted in green, the ones that got back to me and like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I type in St. A's expecting it to just be like another swing and a miss. Um, I'm laying carpet as a job right now, you know? So it's like, okay, it's a little bit different here. We got, we got to get something soon or, or right. things are about to get super real. Um, so Skype interview with St. A's um, and, you know, going back to what I said, like just like that vibe, that energy that you can feel in a room, um, even though it was virtual, like it just, it just felt right. Um, also, I did a little bit of research about like the school itself. Um, St. A's is in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, I knew nothing about it, but, you know, geographically it, it's great because it's really close to an airport and in college football at the scholarship level, that's so important because of the recruiting implications that has. Um, so I was like, you know what, it's, it's a raw platform. It's scholarship level. Um, I'm going to be able to coach my own room. I'm going to be able to recruit my own part of the country. Um, you know, get kids recruits in and out with the airport eight minutes away from campus. Um, you know, let's, let's do this thing. And, um, the OC, uh, Jordan Softcheck and I, we kind of like, um, you know, we, it was really refreshing. You know, that meme of like Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. That's kind of yes. like, that's kind of like, um, my first conversation with, with Jordan. Um, You're like, look at this guy, look at this guy. It's the <laughs> opposite of me and Spencer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it just, it just felt right. So like my Skype interview, it was on March 1st and, uh, you know, I was getting myself all pumped up and, uh, I had March madness by future, you know, blasting as i'm like pulling up my computer you know uh it's funny how you always remember like the exact song oh yeah oh yeah i remember like waking up that day and be like you know what today's the day like i just like i just felt it and um (laughs) and like march 6th dude my my car was packed um and i was making the making the drive up to beautiful new england um i got there right before spring ball so i had like a week to learn the entire offensive system um you know and kind of just went from there. Spring ball was great. Recruiting was great. Fell in love with it. Coaching college football is the coolest job in the world. Like I've never been an astronaut, but like, I think college football might be like the coolest job in the world. I've been playing but, a um, lot of NCAA 13. I can attest. <laughs> there you go. Um, however, I will say that like, just with like any other like career, like you have to like look yourself like in the mirror and be like, what am I willing to sacrifice? And the thing, the thing about coaching college football is it's a lot like building a house only the dimensions on the room change like every week. And it doesn't matter how good you are at building that house. You can get fired at any time and they can bring in a new crew of workers. Right. Um, and for me to kind of leverage the rest of my twenties, like, is this worth me climbing the career ladder, taking, you know, a job, this part of the country to that part of the country for the next four years, just to say, you know, I coach college football. Is that worth it? And to me, the answer was no, because I was missing birthdays and my, like my friends and family, uh, missing weddings. Um, and also just like the culture of college football, um, you know, coaches are there a year or two and then out. 
Um, same thing with the players, you know, in this day and age um, with transferring. And I'm not bashing the players because coaches are just as guilty. Um, you know, a lot of people just aren't where their feet are. And to me, you know, having uh, the ability to kind of develop young men, get them recruited um, for four years and have more of that emotional like buy-in, to me, that's, that's way more authentic and genuine. And it has way more job security. Um, plus, it's, it's a great work-life balance. So for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. You know, it was a great experience. Um, plus, you're also very young and can return to that avenue. You're not, you know, it's, it's not sealed off forever. Yeah, exactly. And I don't want to speak like anything indefinitely. Um, you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not saying anything bad about, um, you know, St. A's or anything like that. It was, it was a great program for me to kind of get in and cut my teeth a little bit and get a, get a taste of what it's really like. Um, I mean, sickest job ever had, had a ton of fun. I learned a ton, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, the best thing for me, what's going to make me, um, you know, the most happy and healthy was, it was getting back to being in the, in, in the classroom too. I miss being a teacher. So, um, Right before the whole pandemic thing went down, you know, I got the BL gig um, and, uh, you know, we're just waiting the season at this point. But I couldn't be more excited to be back at a, um, a great high school, you know, with with young men that are just really eager to learn the game and kind of kind of get after it. So it fits and I'm, I'm pretty happy. Hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a story, and it sounds like uh, you got a real unique perspective, I would say, because you're a younger guy, obviously, but it sounds like you've been a lot of different places you really cut your teeth how would you with that perspective describe what the state of high school football in maryland and with the miaa specifically is right now yeah so um being being a college coach at the scholarship level it's neat because we have access to all these kind of different resources nationwide recruiting essentially and um you know you have the the best football athletes in the country coming out of places like texas florida um, you know, th- there's a lot of really good football in the Midwest pocketed too, but the DMV in itself is a football Mecca. Like there is insanely good football here. And I would say in the past, like half decade, that's become like a pretty like well-known thing in most like college football staff rooms. So, um, like the talent level is unreal. Like, um, just from like when I started coaching, it like comparatively to like what like the level of football that I had seen, like you know where I played, where I'm from, I was like, oh my god, this is a totally different level, and that's exactly what it is. And it's not just in the MIAA; it's also in the WCAC with a lot of the Washington Catholic teams. Of course, um, it's it's in Northern Virginia. Um, it's just a different breed of athlete here. I think there's a lot of um, you know social economic implications there of like what makes like the average like high schooler here different than high schoolers, other places. Um, you know, and it sounds like cliche, but like athletics is a giant quote unquote way out for, for a lot of these amazing young men. And, you know, that it goes back to why recruiting is so competitive at the high school level. Um, you know, it's because everybody wants, wants piece of the action. There's all these youth programs that are just chock full of future stars, man. So, um, I guess to answer your question, um, Athletes have never been bigger, faster, stronger than today, you know, and it's really cool uh, competing against them and recruiting them and coaching with them. Absolutely. So, I mean, no, growing up together a bit, you and I, you've always been someone who's been inspired by uh, leaders and mantras and always kind of magnetized towards leadership and things like that. So I'm glad to see you, someone that admires that now trying to get in that avenue and like you say, you know, help these young men out, give them the best insight that you can. 
And so give us some insight into kids that you've coached at this point and things that you've learned, experiences that you've learned in both football as well as just as a man, as a person, as a human. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that's a really important question to ask right now with everything going on in our country. Um, the biggest thing that I developed over the past six years, like in, in this game has been empathy and just like understanding and like trying to understand and like being an educator, like in the classroom with kids, like, you know, kids like acting up in class. And then, you know, afterwards you say, Hey, you know, I want you to wait until after the bell and you and I are going to talk and then just listen, listen to kids find out why they might be acting the way they are. Did they have food that day? Are there, are their clothes the same clothes they've been wearing for the three days? Is their uniform, you know, at a private school, you know, you gotta wear a uniform. Like you can tell it hasn't been ironed or washed. Like what's going on at home? Like, are you good? Like check in with your guys. And, um, that's just kind of like what I've been trying to do. And that's what I learned, you know? Um, not that I was ever like guilty of like not doing that, but it's just something that I became more and more observant of and sharper. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a little bit of a broader topic, so to, like, narrow it down a little bit, and I guess you can go as inside baseball or as broad as you want on this, but what are some of, like, the offensive schemes that you have kind of picked up in this whole journey and, like, the things that have most interested you interested you in that respect? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, basically, coaching and scheming and game planning, like, it, it is a big recycling bin. That's all, that's all it is from all over the country because you'll have one coach that went here and played under so-and-so and then they like this and they become a coach and you're just taking bits and pieces and, and putting your own spin on it. Um, I guess to answer your question, um, you know, obviously I, I hate labels. Like I don't want to like fall under like the, the umbrella of like I'm an air raid coach. Um, but a lot of the air raid philosophy that I learned from uh, my OC, Jordan Softcheck up at St. A's is kind of like a lot of the stuff I'm implementing um, with my own kind of twist on things. Um, so I guess, you know, air raid type offensive, uh, principles is kind of the answer to that question. Absolutely. And you mentioned your coach, are there coaches outside of your experience or conferences you've attended? And I mean, just expanding, who do you like, where do you get information from? Who's been, do you want to go recycling bin and go take information from, um, what have you kind of learned from, I guess the national scene and things that you've picked up. And obviously you're a very, data and resource heavy guy like myself we've always had that in common so where are you where are you getting your ideas from and how are you executing them yeah man um the two names that like jump right off the page at me are brendan marion who's now to, now at hawaii um you know from william and mary baby the the go-go yep so he uh you know he started the go-go offense um at howard with cam newton's little brother um in that court as a as that quarterback and that great run they had a couple years ago at howard and then he went to the CAA, obviously, with uh, William & Mary. Now he's at Hawaii. Um, I've met him. I've talked to him in person and over social media multiple times. Um, great dude. I love his, I love his content. And I, I love the, uh, you know, the thought behind his concept. Um, and also Matt Canada. You know, he was the interim head coach at the University of Maryland when everything went down under the Durkin regime um, after the tragic passing of Jordan McNair. Um, you know, I heard Matt Canada speak down at the University of Maryland when I was doing some um, professional development. It was at a clinic. And um, my saying, you know, the saying that I, I, I will admit, I, I stole this from you, Matt. So thank you, coach. Uh, the ball is the team. I heard him say that. And I'm like, the ball is the team. The ball, Like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if he had something other than Pepsi and his giant soda cup or not when he said it. But um, 
he said it and it just resonated with me, you know, and if you think about it, the ball is the team. Like if you take care of the ball and you move the ball down the field offensively, you're moving your team. And in that same vein, if you don't, if you compromise the ball, if you turn that ball over, like you're hurting your team. It's as easy as that. And that's all it is, is being an offensive coordinator. Um, so, you know, Coach Marion, Coach Canada, um, I look up to both you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. Happy to see Coach Canada finally landed at a great spot. He's in the NFL now, so shout out to him. Yep, up in Pittsburgh. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that, man, the ball is a team that is such a football guy saying. But oh, yeah. so coronavirus, like COVID-19, we were talking about this a little bit uh, before we even got this thing going. You know, I have a mom that works in the MIAA, and, you know, she's kind of helping to coordinate uh, sports in that, you know, respect a little bit, and it's really affected them. And obviously, you're at an MIAA school as well. How would you say that COVID-19 is kind of most affecting you guys, and what is sort of some of your routes around uh, some of the restrictions it's put in place? Yeah, man, it's been really tricky, but that's what good coaches do. Like, when they get jammed up, they find a way. you got to find a way or make a way. So if you drive past BL right now on Lake Avenue, you'll see, you know, it's gated. There's, you know, giant cones blocking off the entrance. Like we can't get onto the field. That's like the biggest thing is like, especially me as a new coach with a new system, like I am dying to get onto the field and kind of like mm. get these kids in good shape and good condition and everything like that. So that way when August rolls around, you know, we can really get into like the teaching of the scheme and, and the concepts. Um, so just, you know, getting our guys making sure that they're in football shape, especially for me that likes to run a, a varied tempo offense. There's times where I want to go really, really fast. And then there's times where me as a game manager, I like to really pump the brakes too. But to run, you know, 75 plays a game at the high school level is a lot. You need to be really conditioned for that. So um, you know, that's kind of the biggest thing killing us. But, um, you know, we're finding our ways. We, we love our guys. We communicate with our guys. Our guys communicate with us. Um, so just group chats, um, you know, having great position coaches, um, you know, communicate to be like an intermediary and then they relay back to me. And then, you know, we hop on zoom and, you know, we do that whole thing too, like everybody else is doing right now. But, um, yeah, the biggest killer is just not being able to get out there and, uh, get the kids working out and stuff like that. Is there any silver lining, any positives that you think have come, uh, from this situation, anything that you may think makes things more efficient for you or streamlines things down the road or no? Um, not, not really. I think for the kids though, I think like this whole time, like, for kids and coaches, I guess, like in the coaching industry, like there's so like you sacrifice so much time, like so much time. Like I can't even like effectively convey how much time you give up being a coach, whether it's at the high school level and the college level is just even more so it's ridiculous. So it's been, I guess, a blessing to be able to like have time to breathe, look at old film that I would have never gotten a chance to look mm -hmm. at, um, you know, just kind of really grow, you know, read a lot more and just be with my family. Like at the end of the day, like, that's the number one reason why I got out of coaching college football was that work-life balance. So, um, you know, being able to see my people and, and get with them has been really cool. Um, that's been the only positive really. Gotcha. And then, so, I mean, tying back, this is a little bit of a branch off, but when you were up at St. A's, uh, what you described to me was that you were kind of quality control and some of your under or some of your job was literally to understand NCAA guidelines and bylaws and, um, I know that you said you had quite a bit of interesting things, so please divulge what our listeners might find interesting, random, or anything of the sort uh, that people might not know about the NCAA guidelines and bylaws, because there's some crazy stuff in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm happy you asked. Yeah, so I kind of fell into the role of like operations guy, um, which is cool because um, I got to kind of employ some of like the business side of football. 
Um, so I got like a touch of like quote unquote, you know, front office experience, um, you know, handling logistics, like travel and food, like, first of all, like figuring out how much food your college football team eats is like mind blowing. It's insane. I Spencer, I know you're a big food guy. So I see you nodding your head over there right now. Mm-hmm. Like these dudes, these dudes can eat and like, they can clear out a buffet quick. Yeah. And when you're a new guy and you're in charge of food, like, like don't mess that up, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, um, it's always better to have more food than less food. But, um, to answer your question, I, I think something that like the viewers and your audience might want to hear about is like the NCAA transfer portal. Um, so basically to even like get onto the transfer portal, which, um, just about every college coach has access to, um, or every athletic like director's office administrator will have access to, um, you log on and, and people think, Oh, it's just like this, this giant platform of like kids, like, Hey, I want to come to your school. And it's really not like that. It's actually pretty challenging to navigate. So, um, after you pass like the NCAA test to recruit off campus, um, you get access to the NCAA apps portal. And then through there you can kind of go on and like, um, you know, there's drop down menu. So you can see like by sport, like, okay, these are football kids looking to transfer. Um, and then you can look by conference or by division. Um, but it doesn't say like, like their academic standing. It doesn't mm. say like any of their stats. It doesn't say what position they play. So if you're like, Hey, we need a senior leader in our secondary. You can't just go into the transfer portal and be like, Oh, here's all the DBs. Like you, you got to earn it. You got to do your homework a little bit. So, um, you know, one of my jobs, um, was to report to my recruiting coordinator and basically I would go into the portal and then like, I would have to open a new window and like Google the kid's name and like read his like roster stats and like get his bio. And then I would compile all that and send that to my recruiting coordinator. It seems like sort of going off script a little bit here. I do want to stick with this a little bit. It seems like a, uh, you know, climbing up the ladder within, you know, the chain of command with football at pretty much any level, there's a lot of odd jobs involved. Can you think of any like weird odd job stories that you can maybe share with the listeners real quick? I mean, within reason, you don't have to like get yourself in trouble or anything. Yeah, no, no, I definitely wouldn't incriminate myself or, uh, anyone else. Uh, after all, we know the, uh, the NCAA would never do anything like that. No, of course. But, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just like running around a lot, you know, just sweating profusely for eight months straight. <laughs> um, errands, a lot of errands. Yeah, a lot of errands. Quick story here. Um, so when I was at Calvert Hall in my third year, um, I got involved with a great organization, USA Football. And they have these regional camps where during the summer they have kids like come out. And like if you perform well enough at these regional camps, you get to play in the International Bowl which is Team USA versus Team Canada. Um, it's down in Cowboy Stadium, so you're playing in Jerry's world. And um, I worked this camp, and I got asked to coach. And I'm like, hell yeah, yeah that's sick. You know? So um, you know, they put me up for a week in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I coached in Cowboy Stadium when I was 21 years old. You know? And um, my head coach at, at the time at Calvert Hall, Donald Davis, um, you know, he had been involved with USA football for a number of years. And... Um, him and I were on the way to the way to our game. He's like, Tone, we're going to leave early. You're always early. We're going to get there early together. We're going to leave like before the team bus. Like you're going to drive me in a rental mm-hmm. and we're going to go. I was like, oh yeah, for sure, coach. Absolutely. And um, so we leave the hotel. We get on the highway. We got all of our stuff ready. We're heading to this Cowboy Stadium, right? Um, driving through Arlington, Texas. And, um, you know, he's just like, Tone, like I'm so proud of you. Like you've grown so much in the past three years. Like you've really developed like, and he's just like, and he's not a dude that like really like puts it on you like that. So I'm like, damn, like this is like a really proud like father son type moment right mm-hmm. now. And he just got done telling me like, 
like how proud he was of like how like attention to detail oriented I was. And just as he was saying this, I realized that I had been driving 45 minutes in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> and, You're just and like, eating it up, eating up the, the, the compliment pudding. Yeah, literally. Like, I'm having a catch with my dad right now in a rental car on the way to Cowboy Stadium. And in rush hour traffic in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I drove us in the wrong direction. And uh, I, told, I told him, I was like, Coach. <laughs> I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you something. And he's like, what's up? And I told him, he's like, all right, I should have drove. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you know, we ended up getting in the stadium. It was fine. Like, we got there before, like, pregame and everything like that. But we got there, like, not at a comfortable time. Um, I know that's not exactly a great answer to your question. but No, man, that's, that's funny. Any, any dude, any dude, especially a young dude, you know, you're doing stuff like picking up food, doing laundry, um, picking up families at the airport, you know. Um, I waited at uh, Boston Logan for like three hours waiting to pick up an assistant coach that we hired, you know. Um, great dude. His name is Price Ferguson. It's my boy. Um, he actually left Washington State, so he coached with Mike Leach. Wow. And, um, yeah, he was a you know, quality control guy there for a number of years. Um, he was our running backs coach at St. A's. So, um, you know, he wanted to have his own position group, have his own room kind of thing. And, um, so he left, you know, big time football, you know, this dude's coaching bowl games and now he's coaching at a D two in the NE 10. Um, but you know, little things like that, like picking him up at the airport when he got hired, I'm like waiting there for like four hours, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I'm always just, I'm really intrigued by like the kind of the climbing ladder type stories. I don't know if you've read like uh collision low crossers. Uh, it's a really good book book about like the jets circa like 2010 and then also with the jets you've got like joe douglas is the gm there now he was with the ravens back in 2000 and he's in that first hard knock season in 2001 and he's the turk going around telling guys they gotta you know go and get cut basically so it's just cool like i think you know guys climbing the ladder i love those type of stories but you were also a tight ends coach so you got quite a quite a resume here so what are some of the things that you look for uh to you know sort of make a quality tight end and what is something that uh, some guys trying to make it at that position could do to get better quickly, do you think? Tight end is like the semi-permeable position of all positions. Yeah, Swiss Army dude. knife kind of deal. You are a football dude if you are a good tight end. Yeah, and let me tell you something. Right now, Spence, I know you know this, Like the way everything is trending in the league right now, the NFL is going back to being a big boy league, a.k.a. tight ends and fullbacks. So like heavy personnel is like the new the new like. The new personnel. eleven personnel. Look at the yeah, Ravens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. exactly right. So, um, you know, me the recycling being a, bin, as you said, always comes back for sure. And like me being a like a pass game, like quote unquote skill guy, like I never really knew a lot about trench warfare. Um, I always had like pretty pretty like good O line coaches around me to help with like you know the minutia of like O line concept. And you know, I, I've always ran zone schemes, so it's like pretty easy. You know, combo blocks to your next level. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was awesome being like being like the TEs coach, like. I had to learn, you know, a lot of stuff that I never thought I would have to. And it made me an immensely better coach. Um, just gave me, gave me a really good understanding. Um, and then, you know, recruiting for that position, um, you know, in an air raid system, it's a little bit different because you, you need dudes that are big bodies that can move in space and find green grass. Um, that's pretty much it, you know. Um, guys, air raid, air raid tight ends are literally just giant wide receivers. Yeah, they're, they're thick boys that, you know, that you maybe can't move on the outside as much at the X or the Z, you know, so you, you move them inside, but, um, you know, to get mismatch, um, you know, matchups. But um, typically, like, good tight ends are just really disciplined with their feet. You know, your first step off the line of scrimmage, um, controlled six-inch step with a flat back um, with disciplined eyes. You got to know where you're striking. 
Um, you got to know which hand to strike with, little things like that. Um, so just really like smart dudes. Um, and you can see that on film like really quick. Like does their, is their back like, you know, does it sag? Do they, have, they have really good demeanor. Um, can they split block? Um, you know, can they run a drag route? Can they mesh? You know, things like that. And now overall, just kind of off book, like what looking back now, you're six, seven years in and speaking into recruiting, speaking into just skill and, and athleticism and things like that. Are there any misconceptions that you had, you know, going into a position, going in somewhere, going in, looking at film, looking at things that it took you a while to kind of completely flip on. And now you look back and realize like, what the hell was I thinking? Anything like that? Cause I know that personally has happened for me many times. Um, not really. I think the closest thing to that is that like, you know, you, you run an offense that is obviously at the high school level, it's going to be run first. You need to run the ball first, but also like, if you want to sling that thing, you need a quarterback. And if you want a quarterback, he's got to be tall. Absolutely not, dude. Like some of the best quarterbacks I've seen at both, you know, college and high school have been like, five ten or, or shorter you know just average height dudes so to all those average height dudes out there listening like you got a chance still um you know you don't have to be that that six four um six five gunslinger those are out those are out right now the <laughs> tall boys are out the Ky- kyler murray is in yeah especially with the, the fullbacks and tes coming back just just hand it off man just hand it off and and look good you know you'll be all right um so i guess to answer your question maybe that you know obviously i've had terrible game plans where you know i think me and my staff we have a great great, you know, thing ironed out, you know, we're going to, we're going to rock and roll. And then we get in a the game situation and, you know, we get smacked in the mouth and then going back later that night, you know, having sad beers, we're like, shit, man, we, we probably could have done something a little bit different. <laughs> How often do you yeah. find yourself like deviating from a game plan pretty early? If at all? Um, usually end of first quarter. So um, I script my first 12 plays and like, I'm kind of a psychopath about it. Um, I can actually email you guys some play sheets if you want for reference. For but, sure. Um, I have like my, my first, I call it the dirty dozen, my first 12 plays that like I'm running no matter what. Um, basically just because my guy up top is going to let me know how the D's adjusting. And these are just like the 12 best plays we ran in practice that week. Um, obviously we look at tendencies, stuff like that. Um, it's not just like a blind, I want to run this, you know, it's not like that. But, you know, there are times where like I will run like trips into the boundary and my head coach would be like, Tony, like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, it's okay, you know. Um, I just want to see how they. I just want to see. I just want to see. Right, 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 right. Um, so we, you know, if we're not if we're not moving the ball, if we're not scoring, if we're if we're not scoring in the first quarter, um, you know, then that's a problem. You know, we we need to be getting points points on the board. Um, so yeah, usually towards like the end of the first quarter, I have a really good idea of like if we're going to keep this thing rocking or not. And then obviously halftime, you know, you got to give a lot of respect to the other team, to your opponent. Um, cause they're going to make adjustments, you know, they're, they're going to move some things around and then, you know, third quarter is a lot like the first quarter you come out, you know, you kind of see what, see what they adjust to, see what they don't and, uh, let your guys make plays. How much of it at the lower level, or I, I shouldn't say lower level, but like the high school and like the, you know, college levels, would you say it's kind of a poker game and I don't want that to be like too nebulous. So for example, like there's this famous story about how Ed Reed, like early in a season, he misplayed a coverage on purpose so that later on when they played Peyton Manning and the Colts, he looked like he was going to misplay it. Then he came back, picked him off, played it correctly. So how, how much would you say it is kind of that poker game, cloak and dagger kind of thing where you're trying to get them off their heels early so that you can sort of pull like another idea out later on in the game? With me all the time. Like, like I said, like I'm a little bit of a psycho with it. I know exactly what you're talking about, too. Ed Reed was talking about rotating to the hash. Yep. Peyton Manning, you know, was going to see it. And then, you know, um, you know, Reed flips his hips and rolls back and picks it off. Yep. So 
high school football game, like before it starts, like you have pregame warm up. Like most coaches like practice the plays they're gonna run. I run completely fake plays in pregame warm up. And I love it because you'll have you'll have like some you'll have like some coach from the other team with his clipboard like standing trying to intimidate me, like charting my like fake formation. Like, yeah, I'm running the triple option against you. Yeah, this is exactly what we're doing. And like I knew I knew for in one game in particular that was happening. And um first play out there um in pregame, we practice um a bubble screen out of trips to the number three receiver. Um, you know, QB flips his hip for real lackadaisical, you know, and just throws it to him. I'm like, hey guys, this is the first play. We gotta really make sure we get this right. And like the guys believed me. They literally believed me. So what they did was they brought edge pressure from the boundary and you know they kind of sat stacked an extra guy in the flat and like quarterback flips his hips, pump fakes to the bubble, and we just blow the top off and we score the first play. Mark Angers like, against the Cardinals. We've been talking about that. <laughs> boom. Boom. Love to hear it, Anth. I know you do have to get rolling. You have some later things. Uh, what is your, just to wrap it up, what is your best experience, if you can think of anything, since you've been coaching? And where have you been, you know, a little bit down at times? Yeah. Um, best experience isn't even about me, man. It's about helping um, a lot of great young men, um, you know, being the first person in their families get to colleges. And I'm not taking credit for that. Don't don't misconstrue that. Like, I'm not taking credit for that. That's not an attaboy for me. That's just like, I've been super blessed to be in that position to kind of help expose the great talents of a lot of these young men to get to college, um, you know, and kind of do their thing. Um, so that's been the best part is just the relationships that you build, um, you know, with these guys from from the years, you know. So, and it's neat, you know, watching dudes you coach get to the league, you know, the guys that have been at Calvert Hall or guys that were on the U.S. national team that I brushed shoulders with that were on teams that I coached, um, you know, now they're getting paid to do the ultimate game, you know? Um, so that's been really cool. The ultimate low would, would probably be like, um, you know, just, you know, th there's spots in between jobs where, where you don't know if like you're going to be able to keep doing what you love, you know, like, am I going to be laying carpet forever? Like, will I get hired again? Moments like that. But as long as you, again, going back to a football saying, you know, like control your controllables, as long as you do that and like, you don't burn bridges, then you're golden. Absolutely. Anth, love to hear it. Again, tell the people where to follow you, and we'll let you get out of here. Yeah, thank you guys again for having me. I'd love to get back on, talk some ball sometime soon. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, to all the those of you listening, uh, stay safe, stay blessed. Um, hit me on Twitter, at Coach Renato. R-I-N-A-U-D-O. That's Coach R-I-N-A-D-U, Coach Renato. Yep, and check out CoachRenato.com. Otherwise, thank you, gentlemen. The ball is the team. Awesome, man. Have a good one. Thanks. Love you, buddy. Peace. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you guys. See you later. All right. God bless.